1: And welcome to Haley McKee, our brilliant graduate student who will be keeping Gary and I honest over the next few months, and making us look better than we have a right to. So welcome, Haley, and Gary. What you been up to?
2: Oh man, I you know I, I think they call it the quarantine. Mike, you know, <laughs> this work from home. Um, you know, I'm so close to the refrigerator.
1: Oh, that's uh, what so- I. I said, you know, COVID-19 has a whole new meaning. You know, it's like they (laughs) they talk about, you know, college freshmen gaining 10 or 20 pounds. I think I gained 19 pounds.
2: COVID-19. I'm starting to look like like Roger Ailes. Um, So (laughs) anyway, that's not a good thing in a lot of ways.
1: For me, you know, it's been been different. Uh, I have uh, gone to work back in... Uh, the workaday world related to the world of corporate communications uh, I lead public affairs communications sustainability government relations uh, for a Canadian company involved in uh, kind of the midstream business and transporting oil and gas they're very keen on being a bridge to an energy future that includes a uh, renewables and replacement of uh, coal with natural gas. So it's a very interesting business. Uh, for me, it's a lot of fun to be back with, uh, with a team that's eager on getting it right. I, I am taking a leave from uh, Boston University, which was tough because uh, oh, we uh, miss I you love here. being there with you guys.
2: I, I walked down the hall today and your name is still on the door. And, well maybe uh, I can come
1: back. Yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> well, listening to your portfolio there, it, it, does anybody else work for Enbridge or is it just you? <laughs> that's a pretty that's uh, a pretty wide remit.
1: Yeah, it is a wide remit. You know, and it's an interesting time in the oil and gas industry. And here you've got a company that's kind of looked at itself and transformed itself a little bit over the last 20 years. 30 years, but also looking to greater transformation going forward. So it's a a very interesting time in this industry.
2: Well, they hired a good person to help them with all that. That's certainly right in your your sweet spot there, Mike.
1: Well, well, you're kind. So today we have uh, two terrific guests. We have Dr. Don Thea and Dr. Matt Fox, both of whom are with Boston University School of Public Health. And both are experts in the field of epidemiology. I hope I said that right. Uh, (laughs) It is interesting, while we have had many guests, and you and I have talked about kind of the impact of COVID-19 on organizations. This is really our first encounter with real experts in public health. And because we are associated with one of the country's premier research universities, we happen to have real experts in our midst at Boston University, and uh, really looking forward to that conversation and exploring with the two of them why communication matters, especially in the midst of this pandemic. But before we do that, Gary, uh, a few items in the news I'd like to explore with you. The first question I'd like to tackle is how should campaigns respond to negative news? And the case really comes up over the last uh, couple of weeks here. We look at the President of the United States, and there have been two recent publications. And it's been fascinating to watch how he, the White House, and the campaign are responding. You and I both have worked Mm -hmm. in political campaigns, both worked uh, for political figures, and we've both helped executives and companies navigate crises. But in recent weeks, I don't know about you, but I've been surprised to see the president's reaction uh, to two published items, one in a magazine and one in a book. Uh, In terms of the magazine piece, I'm referring to David Frum's piece in the Atlantic entitled Everyone Knows It's True, where it is well documented the many times our commander in chief actually disparaged veterans and men and women in uniform. And for our Mm -hmm. listeners, you need to keep in mind, this is not a drive-by shooting by somebody in the Biden campaign or some left-winger journalist. This is David Frum. He was George W. Bush's speechwriter. And then the other piece is coming out this month, is a book from Bob Woodward, who's like one of the premier chroniclers in journalism of our times over the last several decades. And Trump and uh, his team gave Woodward some 18 interviews, lasting about nine hours. And in these interviews, going back to February of this year, we learned that Trump said, One thing to Bob Woodward about all the Mm -hmm. risks associated uh, with the coronavirus and calling it deadly and talking about the great challenges that were ahead. And at about that same time or shortly thereafter, he was kind of playing it down to the general Mm. public. That is, uh, the president was, as we see today, we're now at a point where about 200,000 Americans have actually died uh, from COVID-19. So not to parse out the political piece per se, but what I'd love for you to do is put your crisis hat on and how might the president have done a better job of uh, deflecting or handling these two challenges?
2: Yeah, it's, um, I'll give you the theoretical and then I'll give you the practical or the reality of it, obviously, the president burned a lot of important time responding to the negative story. We always, in crisis management, called catching the grenade, right? <laughs> and, and you catch the grenade that's thrown at you. And uh, he responded on Twitter and in other ways uh, to both of these issues. Look, the way to, to deal with this is, uh, he, which he did in a certain degree, he denied it. Denied calling veterans suckers and losers, and uh, said about rage, uh, about what he said to Woodward, that he was trying not to panic the public. And, and of course, he traffics in panic every day. Not, that's not political, that's just fact. Mm-hmm. Given those weaknesses in both areas, where he has made public comments about veterans being losers, such as John mm-hmm. McCain, the best thing here is deny it, move on, and stick mm-hmm. to your message. Don't give the, the opposition, if you will, even though this wasn't democratically inspired, meaning in the party, um, yeah. give them two weeks of the campaign to focus on these things. Now, yeah. that's theoretical, yeah. right? That's the yeah. theoretical. Yeah. The practical is, Mike, when you said the Trump team, there is no Trump team.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> There's Trump. Yeah. And he is, he is um, incapable, unfortunately, of letting these things drop. And yeah, because he's kind of uh,
1: kept the story alive himself, right?
2: Correct. Right. He's kept it alive. He caught the grenade. And he's he's perpetuated uh, coverage of these things. And, you know, in crisis management, we always talk about limiting the duration and the impact of these things. Mm-hmm. And he perpetuates them. Um, and so I, I just think he's not capable of uh, responding to anything that speaks to his so, so, personal so character.
1: Put this quickly in in the context of, so there there are other political figures that you and I have seen in the past Mm -hmm. that also had challenges, and yet they seemingly responded differently. So is Trump some genius here in doing something that we're not really tuned into, or is this really a colossal mistake?
2: I think it's a colossal mistake. Look, he's got forty-three percent, whatever it is, of his base that Mike doesn't care about this. You're you're speaking to the people in the swing states. That's who he has to think about. That um, may be on the fence, and I can't believe there's too many of them. The you know the people who describe themselves as moderate or undecided. That's who you're talking to.
1: Yeah.
2: Right. So you really have to macro focus on those folks. And, and by perpetuating the discussion of denigrating veterans and misleading the public on a deadly virus, man. You thing think that me, works
1: with swing voters, right? It,
2: correct, correct. It's the same in business. You're looking at the people who might buy your stock. They're on the fence about it. They might be selling it. And then you've got the folks who are with you, solid. You know, they're long-term share owners or something like that. In politics, you have to think about it the same way. And even more slicing it you know, what does someone in, in Pennsylvania think? What is someone in uh, the panhandle of Florida going to think of this? And I think, Mike, I, 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 in this case, most Americans know he's bungled COVID. Yeah. I think the one that's more harmful to him, given his base and given people who might be undecided, denigrating veterans, including yeah. going to his uh, John Kelly's grave of uh, his former chief of staff to, you know, his son's grave in Arlington and saying what was in it for him you know what I mean, questioning the sacrifice. That, to me, cuts across the brand that that Trump has tried to build. And that was, I I think, the more harmful. It's visceral. It's visceral. Yeah, very, completely.
1: completely. So another thing that I, or another piece of news that I wanted, that caught my eye, they're two stories, and I kind of label them chief communications officers gone wild. <laughs> yeah. and, and I should add that in each case-
2: I hope I'm not in it. Oh, the, activities,
1: <laughs> the activities, the activities I'll put it in air quotes, I hate air quotes, but alleged, and, and each case involved others and maybe included uh, not only senior management, but CEOs, and indeed CEOs felt the brunt of both of these. So the first story was about Rio Tento. And the story was, um, was interesting in that Rio Tento is a mining company, uh, you know, and in the field of extraction companies, you go back decades and decades. And this is one of the the, the super large extraction companies in the world. And they're in every place that you can mine a mineral or an ore. But anyway, what happened is in recent years, they've begun to speak to the world that's interested in environmental, social, and governance efforts, ESG, if you will, Mm -hmm. Um, and seemingly we're stepping up. But just as companies are stepping up, what we also are beginning to realize is that increasingly investors have less tolerance for errors in this ESG space And what apparently happened is that Rio Tinto's words got a bit ahead of its execution. And and, and as a consequence, they're now paying a price with some investors groups. And essentially what was happening is they had a mine in Western Australia that was in part on an ancestral aboriginal site. And apparently they kind of went in there like a bull in a china closet. And there was some destruction of some items that were important to the aborigines or the indigenous communities living in this location. It ultimately led to the ouster of the CEO, the Jean-Sebastien Jacques and the head of its ironware business, Chris Salisbury, and its corporate affairs leader, Simone Mm -hmm. Niven, uh, who had responsibility for communications, ESG, and indigenous affairs. Just wonder, are, are you seeing similar pressures on other companies? And talk a little bit about what it means to make sure that our words don't get ahead of our execution.
2: Well, you know, Mike, I had some experience. GE had a little mining business back in the day. And and we did some business with Rio Tinto, in fact, a lot. And I I can tell you they were sincere Mm -hmm. about their ESG transformation, if you will. Mm -hmm. What you see is, I feel this is, we've got out ahead of ourselves in many companies, this transition to purpose Mm -hmm. and to an ESG driven, stakeholder driven kind of approach to, to capitalism. And we haven't taken the time inside the company to make clear what our priorities are
1: yeah.
2: and often it falls to the cco to sort of lay down in front of the tank and yeah. say we we can't do this and if you don't have the courage to do that then you're not doing your job and i'm not saying that was the case here and other times people you know you're you do lay down in the tank and they still sort of run over you so i'm seeing it more and more where yeah. ccos feel like they are in a vice between mm-hmm. business model and between living values, stated values, and and living up to ESG promises, this is where we need to do better uh, around leadership.
1: Yeah.
2: For CCOs, you know, not just tools, but how are you influential in the C-suite and how can we bring to bear what's going on in society, which is the expectation that what you say is what you do and that companies are going to be activists in the sense that they're going to address these social issues and, and not be detrimental to the environment or, or culture in this yeah. case.
1: Well, and it seems like what we have to do is we got to get more sensitive to the fact that they're you know, investors now that are paying more attention to yeah. what we do, not just what we say. The flip side of that is I, I also think that they're probably, and I don't know all the details except what was reported on Rio Tento by news organizations, but you wonder, you know, did they get it all right? right? On one side, yes, this could be what happened to BP, right? When they said British petroleum is now beyond petroleum. And then you have the problem in the Gulf, and you have a bad action. And in the action, they also communicate poorly. So that could be that. But it also could be too, that markets are maybe being overly sensitive to headline risk, and so the question becomes, which is it? And yeah. I think it's, it, it's something that communicators are gonna to continue to have to struggle with and try to ask the right questions, parse the right facts, so that they can either stand up to management or better educate the various audiences, including investor audiences going forward.
2: I completely agree.
1: The other thing that caught my eye was the Bloomberg story that posted last week that goes back to a series of events that took place 2019, where eBay employees allegedly harassed a Massachusetts couple who had a newsletter that had said a number of unflattering things about eBay. Uh, And one of those things actually went to the portrayal of uh, eBay, at, uh, eBay's CEO at the time, Devin Wenig, about his compensation and pay. And as a consequence, the uh, uh, people who work for eBay responded by essentially cyber-stalking yes. uh, this couple. And they did, uh, they did I mean, uh, unimaginable things from my mind, but like they sent the couple live cockroaches in the mail <laughs> uh, they had a a, a a funeral wreath that they sent. They had a bloody pig Halloween mask and a book on surviving the death of a spouse. What also caught my eye is when you actually look at what the federal prosecutors have actually filed in the indictment. And I should underscore this: the chief communications officer at the time, Stephen Weimer, as of as of yet has not been indicted, nor has the former uh, CEO. But at the time before all of this went, was going on, but at the point at uh, Winnix pay being criticized, the CCO, Steven Weimer had sent a message to the CEO and, and Stephen Weimer is, is in the federal indictment as executive two. And it says executive two texted the former CEO, saying, we're going to crush this lady. And it's like, I've been in situations where obviously a blog or a publication says something negative about CEO compensation or executive pay, or they take the company to task in a way that we don't think is appropriate, relevant, or correct. But I don't know that I've ever seen (laughs) matters taken to this extreme. So you've had a long career. Yeah. How do you how do you make sure that people are held in in check and yes they respond to criticism but maybe don't get overzealous about it.
2: Yeah, exactly. And and by the way, for our listeners, read these stories because it is wild what the security folks and others eventually did to this couple. And look if. He may not have been indicted, but anytime you're in an indictment with a number next to an anonymous phrase like executive two or client number nine, it's not a good thing. I would say this is so easy to let something small and with all due respect to this couple in their in their blog or their website, not a threat in any way to eBay, right? right. Might might have been a threat to the CEO's, you know, pride or something, but you know Mm -hmm. to put it in perspective on what is and what is not important and the last thing a cco should be doing is encouraging this the media is bad or that this person is bad it becomes a cancer inside the company Mm -hmm. Uh, the cco should be encouraging the exact opposite we need to engage with people to understand how they feel about us and why crushing them is not part of that that strategy It, it is very easy very easy to react sort of viscerally yep. and and with anger but my advice to my team always was mike we in every engagement with everyone even our critics we want to look like the reasonable party because yeah. that's what we're going to be and we're going to listen and maybe we are wrong or got some things wrong and we need to fix them but executives really, really, but when it comes to the media particularly, want to call them names and want to, and it gives them an excuse not to engage with the media going forward.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, no, What very well said. I have a a kind of a funny story that's kind of related to this. I was inside of of a company. I was a chief communications officer at a company and there was a blogger that was taking the company to task and almost incessantly and the more and more i got notices from employees and executives inside the company i was working for about this blogger all of a sudden i started to go to the blogger site using my personal computer and i and it was interesting it's like on days when i got comments from employees because it was one of those sites. Most sites don't have them any any longer, but they had a counter, so you could see how many people oh, were hitting that site. Right,
2: right. And it's
1: like on the days when there were more people hitting that site, I was getting more complaints about this blogger from inside this company. <laughs> and so I, I talked to our head of IT, and I said, I don't want to know who's doing it, but I want to get a sense because I can see the volume of activity. How many people are on this company's server are actually going out to this site? Funny. And, and, and when the data came back, it accounted for like three quarters of the increase <laughs> of activity on this blogger's site. So as a consequence, you know, we were actually providing this guy more currency on all the search engines. So people started asking me what to do. And I said, stop going to this guy's site.
2: <laughs> For your biggest fans. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, you had something that we both uh, saw in the, in, in the New York Times Sunday Magazine from The Ethicist. I don't know if you want to share that.
2: The Ethicist is a great column in uh, the magazine now of the Times every Sunday, and they ask questions about ethics. And the lead item yesterday was from a communications anonymous, communications leader at a public university, essentially saying, bottom line, we're bringing all these kids back, You know, 40,000 people from all over the United States, and that doesn't seem like the best public health strategy right now. And yet, I have to go out and promote what we're doing at this university to all of our stakeholders, all of our audiences. And he he asks the Times ethicist, is that ethical? The ethicist, I have to say, which is usually a terrific column, spends about- Doesn't answer
1: the question. (laughs) answer the
2: question. (laughs) Goes on for about 15 paragraphs and summarizes what's going on at universities. But uh, I I think this is a really interesting one. It's clear that the writer, the anonymous CCO has decided Uh, the university is not being ethical, therefore is uncomfortable, uh, personally representing the university's position. You know, it's easy for me to say at this point in my career, you shouldn't, you shouldn't do those things. I mean, if you're in a situation where uh, you don't feel comfortable personally, Mm -hmm. uh, maybe you shouldn't work there, Uh, you know, people need work, and they need jobs, and all that. So, but my, my advice would have been to go talk to the, the, head, the president of the university or your boss, whomever it is, to explain your discomfort, to learn more about how the decision was made, if indeed um, you were lacking right. in information. And ultimately, Mike, look, if you can't resign over every decision. Right. Um, but ultimately, if there is a series of these things and you don't agree with them, it might be a time to look for work elsewhere.
1: Yeah, I I think it depends, one, on the individual's compass, as well as if they feel as though something sinister is at play. Mm -hmm. Talked earlier about, you know, you and I both worked in politics. The political figures I worked with, I didn't agree with them 100% of the time. It's impossible. You and I are are buddies, but uh, I doubt that we agree on Mm -hmm. more than 90% of, of, of things. I don't agree 90% of the time with my wife, um, you know, so so it's like, how do you, how do you how do you look at these things? I think you have to look at it that uh, first and foremost, as a communicator, you're there to be the mouthpiece, or the deliverer of information and communications from the institution you serve or the individual you serve. That institution has made the decision. You haven't made the decision. And if at some point you feel that a moral line has been crossed, Mm -hmm. then you have an obligation to share that with your employer. Or if you really need this job, maybe what you do is, Begin re-editing your resume mm-hmm. and and brushing it off and looking at you know what other opportunities there may be. You know there do come times where for one reason or another, it's a bridge too far. Yeah. And and and, and when that moment comes, I think you have to do what's in your best interest, both morally and professionally. And you also don't want to necessarily make a big deal, particularly of something that not everybody's going to see the same way you do.
2: Exactly, and, and when you argue, uh, if that's the right word, when you put your position forward, um, be informed, be objective, and don't make it
1: personal. Absolutely, you absolutely. Know, and, and,
2: and that's the way to be effective in maybe getting someone to, uh, to change their mind.
1: Now,
0: on to our guests. Yeah, so I think there's so much going on there. I think um, you're absolutely right that some of this. Has to do with the fact that you know when the when the material gets to the to the pr shops they want to get a link that is is as juicy as possible and that is going to drive people to be interested in the research it's going to drive the media to pick up the story um ultimately we as as scientists have a responsibility we have to review and approve those press releases before they go out and we have to really say you know this is what we are comfortable with and this is what we are not comfortable with uh, I also is you know there is an issue with the fact that the the science that that we do um, is is really easy to do until it 's not um, and therefore it has this sort of intuitive and can just uh, answer quickly with some data I find on the on the web and I can draw my own conclusions and I can prove that you are wrong and so I, I think in addition to working with PR offices is to make sure that the the message gets communicated really well. I think we also have to work with, you know, uh, uh, folks on getting our message out clear enough so that it, it can't be refuted with uh, a quick analysis that doesn't actually hold up. But you know that once it gets into the into the press, um, kind of.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, and it, in in research, I did find the the study that ended up with a headline. Uh, our dogs can read our minds, right? Mm-hmm. You know, which you can, how attractive that is to both a journalist and a PR shop, right? Uh, and and the study said nothing of the kind, right? So it's the and and, and then I'll, I'll let Don in. Um, you know, there will show if you if you do the science straight from a point, if you're clear, it doesn't diminish your study, you know, your coverage of the study, and so there is an audience for. Straight, non-hyped uh, science, and and what it means to people. Don, Don you were going to jump in, and I cut you off.
3: Yeah, no, I was. What I was going to say, inflection point at this at this stage. There, I've never seen. Um, really active, um, large communication as on social media when a new finding had been during COVID. Um, and th- to follow some of these threads and to follow the discussion back and forth is really um, quite enlightening oftentimes. And it's it, it goes back to one of the things that Matt said, which is that, that the kind of science that we do is is a bit messy and it it, it 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 tends to be iterative and you don't or even series of research projects and the contexts are different and and it, it really is important to have discussion to give the context so that you can put the findings um, in the in, in the right light the The other thing that I wanted to mention is that's part of this inflection point that that seems to be happening in real time now mm-hmm. is that it's caught in making so that with all these preprints that are coming out now and critical and decision-making and policy-making is being decided upon based on these prints that haven't gone through peer review, um, it, it, it is it much, much messier in terms of our being able to really find the truth and come to conclusions that, that are reproducible.
1: Yeah, and sometimes it seems like it's driven by inherent bias even in the, uh, the initial hypothesis you know and there's there's various you know public policy pressures you talked about it before you know there are people that want a certain result um and therefore that result and within certain timetables how do we how do we create the appropriate you know recognition for you know truth versus let's go make a headline or Let's just get out of information, even though we haven't done all the work.
0: Well, that's really, really hard to to solve that problem. I mean, we have been for a while and we've we've been charted It is it's really, really complicated to deal with those those external pressures. Um, and, you know, there are also, of course, internal pressures. Um, mm-hmm. There are internal pressures for us as and, you know, if, if years or so, it's that, you know, you can you can come up with some some. Uh, evidence, quote unquote, evidence to support just about any hypothesis. You want if you don't have rigorous protocols, I'm picking on psychology, just being very uh, public about it. But we have the same issues in in our field, mm-hmm. uh, and so you know it can be very easy to convince yourself that you've you found something that is important. When it really isn't. So I think uh, so much of this is about just developing really rigorous protocols and then sticking to them regardless of of where the funding is coming from and coming from.
3: But I think even when we do that, when when that when that happens, um, uh, we have difficulty just in terms of um, of uh, public perception of sort of the general scientific area because uh, one of the things that we we talk about oftentimes on our podcasts are uh, is the nutritional. Literature and all mm-hmm. the nutritional studies and and how many cartoons in the New York or other places <laughs> have you seen? with the fact that now I can't drink coffee, can drink coffee, right? You know, right. a thousand steps and steps isn't important. So, the 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 imprecision of the science really works to in certain aspects, undermine the you know the the, uh, the the trust in the public.
1: Yeah, well, it also creates challenges. I think um, for communicators that are these. One, uh, you might feel very good about the science, or you may not know enough about the science, and you might find yourself uh, difficult trying to defend a company that maybe hasn't done the right. You know, so there's kind of both sides of this. I mean, there are people that you know they they have made case and accepted, and then there've been other situations, you know, where. Uh, the case has been made last year, dark waters, you know, with Mark Roof, DuPont and Teflon. Um, it, it's it, it's got to be really hard. What are some of the right questions that maybe communicators and maybe the general public should themselves when they see information that comes with maybe what is already out? Are there good questions? Are there that we should be able to better parse out um uh, what is good as opposed to you know what's you know quick science?
0: So I, I have I have a lot of thoughts on this. The first thing I would say is that uh if something's too good to be true, it probably is. You know, findings happen, sure, but most of the time those those crazy counterintuitive findings turn out to be to be incorrect. Um, you know, the, the biggest success story that we have in, in observational epidemiology, by which we places where we can't do randomized trials because they're they're unethical, is is smoking and and lung cancer. And everybody knows, you know, smoking causes lung cancer. And the reason everybody knows that is because the effect's so large that it's it's very easy to figure out. But you know, those those were our early successes. We we cherry picked those in the beginning. It's that you know, uh, at, at most, are going to maybe double your risk for say, you know, eating. Eating something might double your your risk over a lifetime. Well, you know that's off of a, a, a low uh, baseline risk of some. We're not talking about and so big, you know big headlines that say you know bacon is bad for you. Um, <laughs> these are you know the effect sizes that we're talking about are are seeing really uh, uh, headlines promising almost always. Uh, predict that those are, are never gonna never gonna hold up. The the second thing is you should always ask who funded. Um, there's been a, a looked at in which the uh, if you look at the trial or uh, antidepressant medications and you break them up into those that were funded by drug companies and those that were not funded by drug companies. The effects are are almost always larger in the the drug company funded style studies. Now that you know that. The, that doesn't mean anti-biotic, anti sorry antidepressants don't work, but you know you should you should be a little bit skeptical when you find out that the funder was in fact somebody who has a profit to be made off of this
3: or, or for instance, which is one of my favorite examples is Previgen, which you see commercials for every twenty minutes on CNN and MSNBC. Yes. and that was that was a, we did a pot and completely tore it apart I mean, the, the mm-hmm. did was
1: just a bomb oh, on the one ball. thing and we it, do remember is Previgen. Yeah, right.
3: <laughs> there you go. So you are a success story, exactly. Uh, but that was funded by uh, the same company that is now making um, tens of millions of their own sponsored, really poorly done research.
0: Yeah. I am so impressed well, that you waited that long to get privileged on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> lots
1: of research there, Don. Uh, well,
3: so that
2: so let's bring it forward now to the current situation. Obviously, to COVID nineteen, and so what kind of intervention do we need? socially right now uh, from a communication standpoint. So, so Matt, uh, I want to ask you, um, you know, Mike and I came from companies that dealt with really complex science, materials science, healthcare related science, chemicals, etc. We're always trying to learn and understand science with our English literature, or in Mike's case, accounting degrees, I believe, right? So so, whose fault is this that sometimes science gets distorted as it works its way through the PR shop? So, how do how do communicators and scientists come together to make sure it's clear and accurate?
0: Yeah. So, I think there's so much going on there. I think um, you're absolutely right that some of this has to do with the fact that you know when the when the material gets to the to the PR shops, they want to get a link that it, you know a headline that is is as juicy as possible, and that is going to drive people to. To be interested in the research, it's gonna drive the media to pick up the story. But I think ultimately we as as scientists have a responsibility. We have to review and approve those press releases before they go out. And we have to really say, you know, this is what we are Comfortable with and this is what we are not comfortable with. I also think that there is, you know, there is an issue with the fact that the the science that that we do is is really easy to do until it's not easy to do. And therefore it has this sort of intuitiveness. You know, I can just answer this question really quickly. There was some data I find on the on the web, and I can draw my own conclusions and I can prove that you are wrong. And so I, I think in addition to working with PR offices is to make sure that the the message gets communicated really well. I think we also have to work with folks on getting our message out clear enough so that it it can't just sort of be refuted with uh, a quick analysis that doesn't actually hold up. But you know that once it gets into the into the press, kind of takes off.
2: In in researching this. I did find the, the study that ended up with a headline, uh, Our Dogs Can Read Our Minds, mm-hmm. right? You know, which you can see how, how attractive that is to both a journalist and a PR shop, right? Uh, and, and the study said nothing of the kind. And, and then I'll, I'll let Don in here. You know, there were studies that show if you, if you do the science straight from a press release standpoint, if you make it clear, it doesn't diminish your study, the coverage of your study. Right. And so there is an audience out there for straight, non-hyped science and, and what it means to people. Don, Don, you were going to jump in and I cut you off.
3: Yeah, I think that we're kind of at an inflection point at this at this stage. There, I've never seen more really active, responsible, largely, communication as on social media when a new finding comes out. And it's been particularly underscored during COVID. To follow some of these threads and to follow the discussion back and forth is really quite enlightening oftentimes. And it's, it, it goes back to one of the things that Matt said, which is that That the kind of science that we do is is a bit messy and it tends to be iterative and you rarely come up with a firm answer at the end of any one (laughs) or even series of research projects and the contexts are different and and it it really is important to have discussion to give the context so that you can put the findings um, in the in, in the right light the, the other thing that I wanted to mention is that's part of this inflection point that, that seems to be happening in real time now. It's called clinical decision-making by draft science. So that with all these <laughs> preprints that are coming out now and, and clinical decision-making and policy-making is being decided upon based on these preprints that haven't gone through peer review, much, much messier in terms of our being able to really find the truth and come to conclusions that that are reproducible.
1: And sometimes it seems like it's driven by inherent bias, even in the, uh, the initial hypothesis, you know, and there's, there's various public policy pressures, you talked about it before, in the sense that there are people that want a certain result, and they're hoping for that result. And within certain timetables, how do we create the appropriate balance and recognition or truth versus let 's go make a headline or let 's just get out some preliminary information, even though we haven 't done all the work
0: well that 's really really hard to to solve that problem i mean we have been we 've been at this for a while and we've we 've been trying our best, but it is it 's really, really complicated to deal with those those external pressures um, and you know there are also of course internal pressures um, there mm-hmm. are internal pressures for us. As scientists, to come up with with interesting findings, uh, and you know, if, if we've learned anything from the the world of psychology over the past uh, five years or so, it's that you can come up with some evidence quote unquote evidence. To support just about any hypothesis you want if you don't follow really rigorous protocols. I'm picking on psychology just because they've been very uh, public about it, but we have the same issues in in our field. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it can be very easy to convince yourself that you've you've found something that is important when in fact it, it really isn't. So I think so much of, of this is is really about just developing really rigorous protocols and then sticking to them regardless of of where the funding is coming from and where the pressure is coming from.
3: When that when the that happens, we have difficulty in it just in terms of public perception of sort of the general scientific area because one of the things that we, we talk about oftentimes on our podcasts are the nutritional literature and all mm-hmm. the nutritional studies. And and how many cartoons in the New York or other places <laughs> have you seen where people are exclaiming the fact that now I can't drink coffee or now I can drink coffee? Right. Or, you right. know, a thousand steps is really important and a thousand steps isn't important. So the 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 imprecision of the science really works to, in certain, in certain respects, undermine the trust in the public's eyes.
1: Yeah. Well, it also creates challenges, I think, for communicators that are working in large companies. One, you might feel very good about the science, or you may not know enough about the science, and you might find yourself in the difficult situation of trying to defend a company that maybe hasn't done the right thing. You know, so the, the, there's kind of both sides of this. I mean, there are people that they have made the case and that case hasn't been accepted. And then there have been other situations where the case has been made, like with asbestos or the movie last year, Dark Waters, you know, with Mark Ruffalo dealing with DuPont and Teflon. It's got to be really hard. What are some of the right questions? that maybe communicators and maybe the general public should ask themselves when they see information that conflicts with maybe what is already out there. Are there good questions? Are there ways that we should be able to better parse out what is good as opposed to what's quick science?
0: I have a lot of thoughts on this. The first thing I would say is that uh, if something seems too good to be true, it probably is you know counterintuitive <laughs> crazy findings happen, sure, but most of the time those those crazy counterintuitive findings turn out to be to be incorrect the The biggest success story that we have in observational epidemiology, by which I mean you know, where, places where we can't do randomized trials because they're unethical is, is smoking and, and lung cancer. And everybody knows you know, smoking causes lung cancer. And the reason everybody knows that is because the effect sizes are so large that it's it's very easy to figure out but you know those those were our early successes we we cherry picked those in the beginning now we're talking about things that most are going to maybe double your risk for say you know heart attacks you know eating eating something might double your your risk over a lifetime well you know that's off of a a, a low baseline risk of something we're not talking about huge differences. And so these big, you know, big headlines that say, you know, bacon is good for you, bacon is bad for you. These are, you know, the effect sizes that we're talking about are, are moderate, you know, moderate at best. So when you start seeing really big effect sizes or big headlines promising, you know, some kind of miracle cure, you can almost always... Uh, predict that those are are never gonna never gonna hold up. The the second thing is you should always ask who funded the the research. Sorry, um, yeah. There's been a paper that we looked at in which if you look at the trials for antidepressant medications and you break them up into those that were funded by drug companies and those that were not funded by drug companies, the effects are are almost always larger in the the drug company funded style studies. Now that you know that that, that doesn't mean antidepressants don't work but you know you should you should be a little bit skeptical when you find out that the funder was in fact somebody who has a profit to be made off of this
3: or, or for instance, which is one of my favorite examples, is Prevagen, which you see commercials for every 20 minutes on CNN and MSNBC. Yes. And that was that was a, we did a podcast on that and completely tore it apart. I mean, the, the, mm-hmm. the 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 science that they did was just
1: abominable. Oh, on well, one ball. thing and we it, do remember is Prevagen. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> there you go.
3: So you are a success story. Exactly. Uh, but that was funded by the same company that is now making um, tens of millions of dollars off of their own sponsored. Really poorly done research.
0: I am so impressed well, that you waited that long to get Prevagen in there, Don. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just
1: lots of restraint there, Don. Uh, well,
0: listen. So
2: that. So let's bring it forward now to the current situation, obviously related to COVID nineteen. And so, what kind of intervention do we need socially right now, uh, from a communication standpoint or a leadership standpoint? As you know, these uh, six or seven companies have signed a pledge. They thought it necessary. To say, look, we're going to follow the science on the vaccine for COVID, which is unusual in and of itself, right, that they pledging publicly to be true to the science. But we still see people, faith in vaccines, this one particular, potential vaccine, and existing vaccines continue to erode. Those are not good statistics, good signs for a world and a country in a pandemic. So what kind of intervention
3: can we can we have here to change that Absolutely there needs to be a political change I mean the, the degree to which our scientific institutions and public health institutions have been undermined is is unprecedented mm-hmm. in the extreme and 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 that, that is an absolute that absolutely has to change and then what we need to do is we need to focus on rebuilding the trust after we are in a state where they're not actively being undermined and that's going to be a long haul that's going to be a slog especially given the rise in conspiratorial thinking. And I think that what we need to do is we need to show results. We need to be able to show that we can get the pandemic under control, that we've got a vaccine that is effective, and that we are showing results. And then by example, we will hopefully be able to reinstill trust and authority in both the scientific community as well as the governmental arms of the scientific enterprise which is in, in essence applying and translating the findings of science. I mean I was a Sputnik baby and you know I became so enamored of science sure. because of that sure. and that was our religion at the time and that was that was the truth and I it's just completely disheartening to live in a world where science is being questioned to the extent that it's being questioned.
1: Well, and it's also interesting just in terms of how we use science, because if we look at like universities coming back this fall, or we look at what's happening with various sports organizations, both professional as well as collegiate, it's interesting. They're all dealing with modicums of the same information, the same public health information, but people are coming to separate conclusions or they're approaching this differently. And I tend to be one that is a bit of a of a skeptic anyway, but how do we corral the right information so that more people are making smarter decisions when it comes to broad public health considerations like how are we going to start back at the university how are we going to decide whether or not we're going to allow no fans in the stands or in an in an arena that has 80,000 people normally we're going to allow 25,000
3: you know I, I i it's hard because i think what you're what you're doing is you're combining policy decision making with 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 scientific fact and you know the scientific community i think it's our responsibility to generate the evidence and interpret the e- evidence. And then the policymakers take that evidence and they put it in the right context and they make, they make those decisions. From our standpoint, I think that what we need to do is we need to make sure that the trust is reinvested in the APEC scientific evaluators, the, the Tony Fauci's, the Institutes mm-hmm. of Medicine, the uh, you know, American Academy of Pediatrics immune panels, that, that very carefully and rigorously, meticulously go over all of the available evidence and walk through a conclusion and, and rack and stack it according to what is reliable evidence, what is not reliable evidence, and what are the conclusions that, that we come to. And those organizations tend to be quite conservative in terms of mm-hmm. what they conclude. And, and I think that that's a good thing because that therefore engenders, I think, a higher level of trust in the conclusions that come out of the World Health Organization or the Institute of Medicine. So we need to reinvigorate the, the you know, visibility of these organizations and, and therefore the trust.
0: I would just add that I think that the public health needs to extricate itself from being so closely linked to its messaging coming from government. We have always relied on CDC and and the National Institutes of Health and, and these, these government bodies to give us good, reliable information. And I, I don't mean to imply that this is the first time that those organizations have ever been politicized, because that's not true, but they have always pushed back and resisted. And this is the first time we're really seeing that those organizations have have caved to those political, political will and political messaging. And so I think the, the real lesson that we've learned is public health has to step away from just relying on those institutions to get the right messages out, and we have to build our own way of communicating. And that's gonna take time, but it, it seems to me essential.
2: I think that's a great point. It's a great point, and we've seen examples of the communicators in some of those institutions not understanding or willfully misrepresenting therefore losing their jobs when it's exposed. And I think more of that has to happen in our profession, that people are, that you identify bad PR spin, which is a word I hate to use, on science um, and and make examples of, the, of those folks. I, I, and Don, by the way, I want you to know that my wife has a, a votive candle with Dr. Fauci's picture on it. And every time <laughs> we get really worried Excellent. about about pandemic, we light we light the candle and uh, say a prayer to Dr. fauci. Listen, I, one of the things I, I want to get back to is your podcast. How do people connect with it? Because you can see these two guys are really smart and and they understand communications and connections. so how do how do people find your podcast?
0: Yes, our, our podcast, it's called Free Associations. You could search in any podcast app to, to look it up. However, we have found that uh, apparently the Toronto Raptors also have a podcast called Free Associations. <laughs> so it, it, helps to, it helps to search for Free Associations podcast or, or PHX, which is the, the group that puts the podcast out. So Free Associations from PHX. I,
2: I think the Raptors need some branding help what does free associations have have to do with basketball well although
1: it might be helping out the podcast given that they won the nba championship last year
0: but they but they lost to the Celtics this year so i know oh, yes. i know. Oh, my goodness anyway i'm a Nick
2: guy all right don and matt you guys are fantastic thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to do this I really recommend the Free Association podcast. It's really good. And for communicators out there that listen to us regularly, the simplicity of the explanations on some of this science, which we struggle with, I think is an inspiration. So Don and Matt, thank you so much. Thank you, Gary. Thanks Thanks, for having us. Take care. Thanks for listening to The Crux and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.